Well, like I said earlier, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, working through Psalm 51. Um, so let me open up uh, our time here in prayer, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump right in. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you now, and we seek to worship you in song. We worshiped you in prayer, and now we will worship you, Lord, through the hearing of your word proclaimed. Father, as we gather, grab hold of our hearts. Shake off any, any dust that might be in our hearts, any, any hardness of heart, Lord. We ask that you would shake it off. And that here and now this evening, as we work through these few verses in Psalm 51, that life-giving blood would pump through them, Lord. That our hearts would be stronger in love for you and in hatred of sin. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, do the mighty work of sanctification. May we leave here more conformed to the image of Christ than when we arrived. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. That which I say is true, Lord, would be planted deep. That which is not of you would be forgotten. Lord, put a distaste for sin in our mouths and make your righteousness sweet to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so... Does everybody remember when we first started hearing about this little thing called COVID on the news? <clears throat> Two weeks to flatten the curve. We thought it would be just done with, but it did it. <clears throat> Instead, it's become almost two years now. And we've done everything as a country, as a world to neutralize this. We've washed hands like we've never washed hands before. We've worn masks. We've sterilized groceries. <clears throat> we've done online school, online work, online church. We've missed birthdays. We've missed graduations, anniversaries, funerals. Many have chosen to even get vaccinated. And yet, COVID still exists. No matter how hard we try, by our strength, by our ingenuity and our intelligence, <clears throat> to get rid of this bug, this virus, it's still there. People are still getting this virus, even if people that have taken every precaution known under the sun. Because it's really hard to wash away something you can't see. <clears throat> it's really hard to wash away this grime and filthy virus. You just can take every precaution known to man and somehow, like a silent assassin, it slips in and you get it. I remember when I got COVID, I, to this day, I have no idea how that was possible. And yet it got me. 
Because it's really hard to wash away a virus of filth you can't see. <clears throat> now let's think about why do I share that? Because by and large, most of us would probably think our lives are pretty clean. You would think you're a pretty good person. But the reality is sin lives inside all of us, and it's in places where it's really hard to see it or maybe not see at all. It's in our hearts. And Jesus, in his grace, acts as the light that enables us to see our sin. And so when Christ shines in on our hearts, all of that becomes visible to us, and we can see our need. But we still can't wash it away on our own. Christ washes away the sin. <clears throat> but so many of us walk around this world, walk around life, go about our day unawares of that small, not visible virus of sin that is at work in us. And so we're going to see in these verses today is that we must know, confess, and take ownership of our sin. You must know, confess, and take ownership of our sin. So if you would, take your copy of God's word and open up to Psalm 51 with me. We are going to look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Let me read them again. <clears throat> For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in the sin my mother conceived me. The first thing we need to do and see here, as we think about David and he's writing this psalm, we've seen what were the, the circumstances surrounding the, that grievous sin that took place, series of sins that took place when he took Bathsheba. We see David here saying, you know, I know my sin. I know my sin. I know my transgression. It is ever before me. Why is David able to say that he knows his transgressions and that his sin is ever before him? It's because knowledge of sin comes from a knowledge of God. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, once said, Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and has come down after such contemplation to look into himself, end quote. <clears throat> you see, if we do not know who God is and what he's like, we really will never truly understand our sin. We will not know our transgressions and our sin will never be ever before us. We'll look to our left, we'll look to our right, we'll compare ourselves to other people, and we'll think we're not that bad. We're just doing what everybody does. This is normal. But when you come to know God, and you see that he is holy, and that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is jealous, that he has a holy wrath, that he is perfectly pure, that he is blameless, and then you look in the mirror, that's a different story. Then you can say, <clears throat> I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. 
Because it's only after you come to know God that you can ever truly know yourself. See, the amazing thing about King David is that King David didn't simply know about God. King David knew God. There's a, there's a marked difference here. Knowledge of God is not the same about who he is and all that stuff you find in the books. It's not the same thing as the knowledge of God you have when you toil with him in the midnight hours in prayer, when you depend on him at every turn. That's a knowledge of God that comes simply when you walk with him. And that's what David had. David knew God's character. This is why David is called a man after God's own heart. Because he sought out God personally. He wasn't content with simply head knowledge of the Lord. If David didn't know God, he could never have written Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is not the writing of a four-year seminary student saying, look how much I've learned. Psalm 51 are the words of a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who has been utterly broken by his sin and yet knowing that in God there is hope because he is a God of grace and forgiveness for all who repent. So here's a real simple way to know if your brokenness over sin is a Psalm 51 type of brokenness. When you reflect on your sin, are you burdened that you broke God's rules? Are you burdened that you broke God's heart? You see, if you're worried that you broke God's rules, you're worried about punishment and consequences. But if you are burdened that you broke God's heart, it's because you know his character and the relationship is severed and, and there is distance between you and God. And the fact that there could be relational distance between you and God is so painful and unbearable. There's a difference. <clears throat> if I get pulled over, I'm burdened by the fact that there's a consequence for my wrong actions. I'm going to get a ticket. I'm not burdened that I cost me have a grief to the officer. No, I'm burdened by the fact that my sin is a consequence. I broke a rule and I got caught. But if I do something grievous and sinful toward my wife, who I love, I'm not worried about the consequences. I'm worried about the relational estrangement that comes out of it. David here is broken over his sin because he knows that what his sin is going to result in is relational distance from God. Notice David says here in Psalm, in verse three, for I know my transgressions. He knows that word, no, he's, I'm keenly aware of my transgression, my breaking what God has made clear in his word. I've broken the, the word of God. God said, do not do this thing. And I did it. And I'm keenly aware. I'm not confused at all. I have a complete knowledge that what I have done at the heart level is wrong. That burden is sitting upon him like an elephant upon his shoulders. Church, you know, the man who does not 
see his sin in the man and woman who does not have conviction of sin is probably the individual who has no part of God. The man who does not see his sin or have conviction of sin is a man who has no part of God. Interestingly, Psalm 51 shows that despite the heinousness of what took place, David is closer to God at this moment probably than he's ever been. True brokenness over your sin that results in true repentance will bring you closer to God than you can ever imagine. (coughs) David says, I know my transgressions. And I, as I, as I read that and, and, and reflected on that, I struggle because I know for a fact that there is more sin in my life than I'm aware of. I can say I know some of my sin, but there is so much, there is so much iniquity, so much sin and transgression within our own hearts that we're not even aware of. And he says that his sin is ever before him. He is so consumed by the fact that he has sinned that he's saying it's continuously right there. It's right in front of me. I'm so aware. I so know my sin that it's dominating my field of vision. If I look left, right, up, down, it is there right in front of me. It's interesting. He uses two words, transgression and sin here. Transgression means I know what God's law was. And I broke it. But sin gets at the heart level. He's saying, even at the heart level, my thoughts, my words, my actions, my desires have been against God's character and his word. David's saying, it's all been sin right there. So as we think about that in verse 3. We have to realize that we need to make sure that we do not bury or overlook our sin. We must not hide our sin from others. Most importantly, we we cannot hide our sin from ourselves. We need to deal with it. We need to know our sin. It's so easy. Things are going wrong. I'm going to put it on the mental, emotional shelf behind some really big boxes and I just don't have to deal with it. I'm just not going to do that again. I'm not going to fiddle with that again, but I'm going to hide it. But you don't really deal with it. It's there. It's not going anywhere. It's only a matter of time before it falls off the shelf. And so we cannot bury our sin. We cannot overlook our sin. We cannot hide our sin. We must not minimize our sin. We need to see that our sin is grotesque. We have to do business and and just acknowledge it. There is so little, perhaps, I think there is so little victory over sin because there's so little knowledge of sin. Just think about the things that have become, that are sinful, that have become normalized. Do you realize that, let's just take, not that I go to the mall often, but if you were to go to the mall and just walk the mall in the storefronts, By and large, so much of what's there in in clothing stores is pornographic in nature, but we don't blush because it becomes such it's become so normalized in our culture. We are so unaware 
not only of the sin within our own hearts, but the sin that we've normalized in the world we live in. We can't do that. We need to address it head on. We need to have a knowledge of it. But our ability to have that knowledge of sin doesn't, let me say this. You don't need to study sin. You need to study God. Spend your time studying who God is and your knowledge of your, your sin IQ will go up. Keep your eyes fixed upon God. I've said it before, but the way they, I've heard it said that they train people to identify counterfeit bills is by handling the real money. Because then the minute you handle something false, you recognize it. In the same way, the more we fix our eyes upon the holy, righteous character of God, the more sin will be evident to us in our own hearts, in our homes, in our churches, our communities, and in the world. And so we must know our sin is the first point. But then David goes in verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Church, all sin is against God. All sin is against God. Long before there was a King David, there was a young man named Joseph. And Joseph is a great example of someone who recognized that all sin is before God. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, there is a very insightful account of this truth. Joseph is in Potiphar's house, and we pick up the narrative here. We'll start in verse 7 to get a little background. And it happened after these events that his master's wife set her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has given me all that he owns into, his, into my hand. Verse 9 now. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Not how could I do that against my master, the home who's entrusted so much, he's blessed me. No, how could I do this great evil against God? See, Joseph understood that all sin is chiefly against the Lord. But David doesn't say that all sin is against God. He said, my sin is, he says here, against you, you only have I sinned. What do you mean only, David? What about Bathsheba? I think you sinned against her. How about Uriah? How about your troops? How about Israel? Didn't you sin against all of them? We have to understand that God is sovereign. So therefore, all of our sinful thoughts, words, deeds, actions, desires are an attack against the sovereignty and supremacy of God over our lives. When we sin, we are telling God, I do what I want. I don't have to do what you want. But he is God and we are not. God has made us and therefore he owns us. He has ownership rights. 
You and I do not have the autonomy to determine what is right and wrong for us to do. God has made that clear. Second, every single person has been created by God in his image. So when I sin against another brother or sister, or even when I sin against myself, I'm still chiefly sinning against God because I am sinning against his creation that belongs to him. When I sin against a brother, I'm sinning against God's creation that he owns. So I've sinned against the Lord chiefly. That's not to say that David hasn't wronged others. Like we said, he totally wronged Bathsheba, Uriah, his troops, Israel. He has terribly sinned against them. But it's still ultimately against God because God is the one who will ultimately judge David. I can sin against a brother or sister, but they don't have ultimate judgment over me. God does. It is before God Almighty that all of us will have to appear and give an account. Hebrews 9.27 says, It has been appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And so all sin is against God only in the almost ultimate sense because only God can judge. God is supreme, God is sovereign, and God has ownership over everyone I sin against. It's interesting, David says here, and done what is evil in your sight. Do you notice David doesn't leave the door open for any hidden or secret sins? Then what is evil in your sight? Now, you can sin, you know, you can sin against a spouse, a friend, a child, a coworker, a boss, and they will never find out. Never find out. We've all sinned against people that have never found out we've sinned against them. Got away with it. But God knows. God knows the evil you've done because you did it in his sight. God knows every sinful thought you've had, every sinful desire, every sinful action. Because God is omniscient and omnipresent. By omniscient, it means that God has knowledge of all things perfectly, perfect knowledge of all things. And because God is omnipresent, it means he is everywhere always. His eye is over all things. There is no sin you've thought, no sin you've said, no sin you've done that has been outside the eye of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an, uh, to whom we have an account to give. Listen to that once more. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. And so when David says, I've done this evil in your sight, 
Nobody knew what was in David's heart when he was on that rooftop by himself that night. At that point, it was just David and his sinful desire at that on the roof as he stared down at Bathsheba. But God knew. God saw the evil brewing in David's heart. And David said, hey, who's that woman? Can you get her for me? God heard those words. And when he committed that act with Bathsheba, God knew he committed that act. And when David in his heart in, was devising these plans, hey, go to your home. Go, no, trying to get your right of fall. David, God knew what David was really trying to do. And when he got him drunk, God knew David's motivations. And when he wrote that letter and sent it by Uriah's hand and had him killed, God knew. God knew it all from beginning to end because there is no sin hidden from the sight of God. And what's true of God and David is true of you and I before God. He knows it. And so we need to confess it as David is. David's confessing here. Verse four, words of confession. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's broken by his sin. How broken is David by his sin? Think about this. David is so broken by his sin that the only category he has is God right now. Sin before you and you alone. He's totally forgot about the others involved. He's so gripped. There's no pride in David right now. David's been completely hollowed out. And what we see here is that true confession of sin will always bring about true godly sorrow. Listen to the words from Psalm 38. Psalm 38, verses 1 through 4 say, O Yahweh, reprove me not in your wrath and discipline me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have pressed deep into me. And there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities go over my head as a, as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. And then in verses 17 and 18. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. That's written by David also. He's experiencing true godly sorrow as he confesses these sins. The Apostle Paul addresses the issue of true godly sorrow in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, he writes, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. 
but the sorrow of the world brings about death. You see, there's a way to feel bad, sorrowful, burdened by your sin that has nothing to do with God. It's just purely the consequences. That's not what David's doing here. David is confessing to God. Here's the reason. Guilt over your sin is not enough. Do you want to know if it's true godly sorrow? Are you confessing it to God? Do you confess it to him? Does it burden your heart and keep you up? And do you stammer in speech to God? I've sinned against you, Lord. I've sinned against you alone. And as you confess, do you recognize rightly what God could and should do to you? Look what he says here in verse four, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. David recognizes that God owes him nothing right now but justice. God should take David out. He should demand his soul from him this day. And David recognizes it. God, you're justified when you speak. You're right. You're just. Your pronouncement of me is true. And you're up here when you judge, meaning you're blameless. There's no duplicity in you. There's no corruption in you. It is pure holiness in which you judge. And so David doesn't argue, doesn't mount a defense, doesn't give excuses. He sits there saying, I am rightly judged by you. You see, before we ever lay claim to the grace that God offers to forgive, we have to first accept the fact that he is right simply to judge us and leave us there. This is why I think to some degree we do a disservice to children when we run straight to the gospel and how much God loves you and how much God forgives you, but we never raise them to understand the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and that what the penalty for sin truly is. And so we cheapen the justice of God, the righteousness of God, with good intentions. But then we wonder why so many young people grow up to have such a low view of sin. Because we've only offered them cheap grace. There's no cheap grace here in David. He can he recognize he knows his sin, he confesses his sin, and he stands there willing to accept the judgment of God. You know, brothers and sisters, all of us sin, but not all of us genuinely confess our sins and seek forgiveness. So many sometimes think that confession was this one-time thing that we do to be saved, and that's it. Sure, our conscience may be pricked and we feel bad over our sin, but we just keep on doing the same old thing. Well, I'm saved. I, I believed in Jesus for the forgiveness and justification. And so we don't confess our sin. We don't really, and we find we, we, we make excuses for it. Well, I'm struggling. No, you're rebelling. And you see, then we don't confess it to the Lord. And when we don't confess our sin to God, one of two things typically happen. One, our hearts lose their sensitivity to sin and begin to grow dull to sin. And as a result, you get swept away into greater and greater degrees of sin. 
Or second possibility is that you become so paralyzed by guilt and shame that you lose sight of the gospel. We, because we don't confess our sin, we're so focused, we end up focusing more on our sin than God. And so we're paralyzed by it. And we forget that if we genuinely confess our sin and repent, that God stands ready to grant forgiveness. But we're not in the habit of confessing. And so guilt and shame swallow us up. And God is seen more as an executioner than a God who forgives. When you don't confess sin, you either go deeper into sin or you begin to forget the gospel altogether. I'm not sure which way you drift. I know which way I do. But the result, the, the, the answer to both of them is the same. It's the gospel of Christ. The finished work of Christ, because of the finished work of Christ, we can lay all of our sin there at the cross. Each day we can freely confess our sin to God with no fear of condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go read Romans 7. Listen to the word, hear the words of the apostle Paul, who is burdened, unlike anything I've ever personally experienced by his sin. And if you just end it at Romans 7, you're like, it's over. There's no hope. But Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We must confess daily our sin to Christ. And so verse three, know our sin. Verse four, confess our sin. Now verse five, we must take ownership of our sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Do you notice David makes no excuses here? He doesn't somehow say that God is responsible for this. He places no responsibility of his sin on, on God. David's response is actually very different than that of Adam and Eve. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 3 and read of the fall of Adam, and you see them going into sin, a very interesting thing happens here. If you go to Genesis 3, starting at verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What does Adam do? The man said, well, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. Then the Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. No ownership. Both of them passed the buck. Both of them shift responsibility. Adam should have said, yes, I did. I confess that the thing you told me not to do is what I did, Yahweh God. But he doesn't. He blames Eve. And he almost blames God in it because, well, the woman you gave, had you not given me this woman, God, this never would have happened. It would have just been me, the animals. We would have been chilling and eating all the other fruit. But you had to give me this one woman. And look what she did. And the woman's like, well, you know, 
had you not created this serpent, this wouldn't happen to me either. There's no ownership of sin. It's another way to know if you're repentant. Are you making excuses and passing the responsibility around? Nobody's responsible for your sin but you. Nobody. Now he says here, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in this iniquity. This is the doctrine of original sin. What David's essentially saying, reminding us here in this psalm, is that when Adam sinned, every other human born after Adam and Eve had a sin nature. It was woven into the very fabric of who you were. And you also incurred, incurred guilt before God and a deserved punishment. Original sin reminds us that we were born this way. Jeremiah 17.9 really gets to the heart of this also. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, a very familiar verse to some. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Your heart, the very center of your being, your hard drive, God tells us in his word, is corrupted. If the hard drive goes bad on your laptop, you're pretty much going to need a new laptop. Or you have to get a hard drive replaced, right? But see, the thing is, we can't, we, the same way a computer would need a new hard drive in order to function properly, we need a new heart to function properly. At the very core of our being, the processor that governs our life is sinful. It is tainted with sin. Sin is always a heart issue before it's an actions issue, before it's a words issue. And it was imputed to us. It was passed down to us from Adam. Romans 5, chapter two, verse 12 and verse 19, make that clear. But he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Another doctrine we see here is not just original sin, but total depravity. Every single part of who we are, our mind, our will, our emotions, our flesh, have been corrupted, tainted, affected by sin. Another way of saying this is that sin affects everything that you are. It includes your entire being. It penetrates to the very deepest core of who you are. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like wind carry us away. No matter how hard you try, you cannot remove the sin within. We sin because that's who we are by nature. This is why the scriptures say we must be born again, that we must have a new heart. God is not, you are not a fixer-upper. You're a complete teardown in a new creation. And so we have to respond by repenting. We confess, we, we know our sin, we confess our sin, we take ownership of our sin, but we repent, meaning we turn away from sin to Christ. Christ. 
It's not enough just to confess. You can confess every day, all day, twice on Sunday. But if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from sin and turn to Christ, it's nothing, it's, it profits nothing. You must turn. Because it is only in repentance that our fellowship with God can be restored. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, we read, Now when they heard this, the preaching of the gospel by Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We must repent. The evidence that you've repented unto salvation is that your life is marked by daily continual repentance. Repentance is not a once a year flu shot. Repentance is a daily vitamin you take. You must daily be repenting. Because we have original sin, because we're sinners by nature, you and I can never please God on our own. Good, you can do as many good deeds as you want but they're tainted with sin. So you have to be born again, first and foremost. We have to confess, repent on the Lord Jesus Christ, be forgiven and justified and brought into fellowship with God. But then once we are brought into relationship with God, we must do the hard work of continuously seeking to know our sin at deeper levels. And once we know our sin, we confess our sin. And once we confess our sin, we take full ownership of it and we repent from it and we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to put it to death. And we can take hope because we are told in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, unrighteous, all unrighteousness. That is David's great hope here in Psalm 51. David, we saw last week, was appealing to the character of God. This week, it's the admission of David about who he is and what he's done. But he knows who God is. And so I can confess my sin before God. I can know my sin before God. I can confess it. I can repent from it. Because I know when I do that, I'll be accepted once more by God and restored. As we go through Psalm 51, we see David going through this. But again, let me close by saying, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must know, confess, and take ownership of our sin if we are to be restored into fellowship with God and given victory over sin. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this evening. Lord, sin so easily entangles. Sin so easily masquerades itself to seem like a good thing. It goes down sweet, but it is poison to our bones. And Father, we are so self-deceived. There is so... We don't even know the sin in us, but part of the reason we don't know the sin in us is because we don't know you. And so, God, I pray for each and every one of us that we would grow in our knowledge of you. And as we do so, we would grow in our 
knowledge of the sin within. And when we see that sin, when we know that sin, Lord, I pray that we would be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to confess that sin with genuine godly sorrow. Make us sorrowful of our sin, Lord. Make us hate it. But then, Lord, do not let us get off the hook and try to pass the buck and and find excuses and, and reasons. But let us take full responsibility, full ownership of our sin and recognize, no, I did it because I did it. It's no one else's to blame. I chose to rebel against you, Lord. I chose to sin against you. I chose to try to lift myself above you and think I know better. And then shatter our hearts once more then, Lord. And bring us to that place that we would turn away from it and turn to you, Lord Jesus. Then, as we will see, you will receive healing for the bones that you have broken. Father, I thank you for Psalm 51. Because you remind us in Psalm 51 that sin is serious, but our Savior is great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.